you know, I'm not a sports guy in general, but the way I got into sports and has always been through the stories, the drama, right? Give me like a documentary about it. Give me like these weird YouTube channels that are like, hey, remember this one pass a hundred years ago that, you know, did this and this and that. It's like, I love those rabbit holes now. And it's always at the core. It's like the people who can tell the story, like the drama of it, because conflict is so clear in sports. That's why they rule in movies. And that's why baseball specifically is fantastic in movies. There's a clear pitcher, batter. Like, it's so obvious what's happening. Visually, it's like a Western. It's like a Mexican standoff. It's, it's like the conflict is so clear, right? So when you add then like dr- the seasoning of good drama and good character, it's obviously going to be compelling. It's just the momentum is there. Your brain understands it in a real way. Welcome back to the Formative Films Project, a podcast series where we discuss how and why the movies we watch shape us, entertain us, and help tell the stories of our lives. I am your host, Braden Shaw. Sticking with last episode's theme, we'll continue looking at period pieces and films that utilize and examine history. Three of the films in this episode detail historic events the inception of a social media platform, innovation on the baseball diamond, and investigative journalists uncovering a scandal involving the Catholic Church. But the fourth film, which is the one we'll be leading off the episode with, deals with historical fiction. My name is Lucy Peterson, and my favorite movie is National Treasure. I had to ask a very important question up top. You know, Lucy, I had noticed, um, oh gosh, it's probably been a few weeks back now, but that you had uh, jumped on Letterboxd and you have logged two movies, um, National Treasure and National Treasure Book of Secrets. And uh, your Letterboxd review, I have it here, um, of National <laughs> Treasure is, and I quote, um, John Turtletop, the director of this film, John Turtletop saved my life with this movie. Um, what was the thought process behind that? And what does that mean? Um, the thought process behind that was first, uh, like two glasses of wine. So <laughs> I'll preface with that. <laughs> um, and <laughs> second, I just, I don't, it's such an enjoyable movie for me. And I just never watch movies. Like I don't like to sit down and watch movies and I can't like, I've seen some movies and I've just never like fallen in love. Like I watched La La Land um, when it came out and I hated it. <laughs> like just so many movies that people are like, oh man, I love, I've watched them and I've just been like, meh. But <laughs> National Treasure for some reason has just been one that I've like really stuck with. And I feel like because I'm not a movie person, but I just really truly love this movie so much. That's a big, that's a big thing for me. <laughs> No, definitely. I, I love it. I love the passion. Um, I love the fact that you're so, and this, I can tell this isn't a bit, like I can tell you absolutely like actually like this movie. I do. <laughs> and I, it's funny. I think it's like, it's kind of a meme that I love this movie, but like, I've like gotten past the part where I'm like, haha, this is funny. I'm like, no, wait, like I've watched this movie probably over 10 times, 15. You know, there's a decent chance that Lucy Peterson a current KU student, thought I was joking when I first approached her for this, considering she's not really into movies. 
But as I've said before on this podcast, we all have at least one favorite. And in this case, that film is truly a national treasure. I don't know. I mean, I've always been into like U.S. history and like Revolutionary War period. Um, I just always thought it was interesting. And I think I like watched the movie at a time when I was like, I was young. And so it was like one of the first movies I remember like (laughs) watching with my dad. And so we both just kind of were like, oh my God, this is so fun and like interesting and dramatic. (laughs) I, I don't know. It's just, I just watch it. And every time I'm like, I love it. Why do you think this movie has become such a meme? And do you think it deserves more respect? I think part of it is just Nicolas Cage because I think him like just himself is kind of like a meme and it's just every like detail of the movie is just so unrealistic kind of, but they make it look realistic. I think the critiques are fully, they are fine. (laughs) Um, They're deserved. It's a Disney movie. So obviously the audience isn't for like, well-seasoned film people who are like like it's never it's it wasn't ever made for the Oscars but I just think it's fun and it's definitely mean because of Nick Cage and just the humor that they throw in and just like everything that happens and it's just funny to laugh at but interesting to watch and it's just all the emotions. From 2004, National Treasure written by the trio of Jim Koof and Cormac and Marianne Weberly, and directed by John Turtletob, follows a modern-day treasure hunter, historian, and conspiracy theorist, Benjamin Gates, played by Nicolas Cage, and his search for the Templar treasure that's been hidden for centuries. He employs a group to help him find the treasure, including his sidekick of sorts, Riley, and alleged master thief, Ian, before being double-crossed by Ian while searching for clues in the Arctic. From then on, it's a race to find the treasure as Ben, Riley, and archivist Dr. Abigail Chase search for clues in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York City. It's an absurd adventure film that, sure, on one hand, could be seen as a Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoff, but on the other hand, it doesn't get much better than hearing Nicolas Cage say, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Um, do you remember the first time you watched it? Yeah, it was in a movie theater with my dad and my friend um, from elementary school. Do you remember, um, you know, because I feel like this movie obviously is predicated a lot of this like adventure and a lot of action going on. Do you remember the feelings of watching this movie for the first time and just watching this story unfold? I just remember really enjoying it and just remember being like, oh my God, he's going to still steal the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) Like what? How absurd. (laughs) Um, I, I don't remember exactly what I was feeling and I honestly don't even like remember exactly how like my family and I got into this hole of we're just gonna like every time we watch a movie it's gonna be National Treasure. I feel like it started maybe when I was in high school. Um, so there was kind of a lag in there <laughs> where I wasn't really watching National Treasure. <laughs> what makes this movie uh, so rewatchable and makes it that you want to go back and revisit it time and time again? I feel like the story is just fun to follow along with. And like the humor is so like dry and witty. And that's one of the things like 
my dad will always just like randomly quote like small things from National Treasure. And so my brother and I have kind of like gotten a kick out of it. So the humor definitely, um, the story is just absurd. (laughs) Um, And I've always been into like mysteries and treasure hunting type like books and stuff when I was younger, like the Magic Treehouse books were things that I read a lot. And I feel like that there's, there might be a correlation there. I don't know. But um, yeah, I just am always like watching it and having a good time. You know, you've, you've mentioned uh, the word absurd a couple times already. Um, do you think that the kind of inherent uh, absurdity or goofiness of this story kind of helps it in a way? I'd say so, because it's something that like, obviously no one could steal the Declaration of Independence. Like that's not... Like when I went to DC my senior year of high school, I like told my brother I was going to make this joke on my Snapchat story that was like when we went to the archives, take a photo of the decoration and put like 10 screenshots and I'll I'll steal it or something. But there is so much security there. You can't take your phone out. Like you can't. So it's just, it can't happen. But there, it's not like it's a satire. (laughs) Like they're so serious about it. And it's kind of just like funny to be like, oh, you're not, you're not joking about this. the Declaration of Independence. So I think that's part of it is that it's just like, this would never happen, but they really act like it would and they pull it off. That self-seriousness also adds to the treasure hunting and clue gathering process. Ben is constantly showing his work, if you will, like in that early Charlotte scene. He's thinking out loud to the point where you can't tell if this guy is just genuinely excited to uncover more clues or if he's just a pretentious know-it-all. Honestly, it's probably a little bit of both. If you were Riley, or if you were in this situation, would Ben Gates be kind of annoying, whether just the fact he knows everything and just just kind of talking out loud like that? Yeah, I, I feel like my mom is kind of that way. <laughs> like, my dad has really gotten into like crossword puzzles like he always says the New York Times crossword puzzle and he and I will be like trying to figure things out and then he'll just ask my mom random ones that we can't figure out and she'll just know the answer right away (laughs) so I feel like I kind of have a figure like that already in my life and it's like oh my god that's so annoying why do you have to know everything all the time so yes I would probably be really irritated no definitely I mean that that was just one of the one of the thoughts I had this last time watching it I was just like oh my gosh this dude like it's not like an arrogance but just like this guy just knows everything it's kind of annoying there but um uh, and I'm glad you mentioned kind of the different steps they have to go to, because one of my favorite parts of any heist movie is when they're kind of explaining the heist, right? They're kind of going through the mechanics, like, okay, we need to go here, here, here. It's it's locked in this concrete vault. We got to go through all that. What do you think of, and especially the very 2004 CGI, um, what did you think of kind of the mechanics of Riley and Ben kind of explaining how they're going to do the heist? I thought it was super interesting. And like the way I feel like, I always like you watch movies that you watch when you were younger and you like figure out things that just didn't make sense at the time because you're so older and you know more. Um, So I think when I first watched it, I like didn't totally understand like what they were saying or like, I remember when I was younger watching it, I didn't totally get the point of doing the like fingerprint. Um, But then like looking back, I was like, okay, wait, no, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I thought it was super interesting. And then that kind of like juxtaposed to what, um, I don't even remember the characters' names. Uh, the other ones, the British guy. Oh, Ian? Ian? (laughs) Yes. 
and the way that they like used force and then Riley and Ben used um, their like brains. I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. That was just like Riley and Ben were like this like Mission Impossible sneaking around and Ian was just like, let's just blow everything to hell and just get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, was there ever a moment, and obviously you've seen this so many times, but is there, is there ever a moment even looking back now where you're like, oh my gosh, they're not going to pull this off? I feel like I always get really anxious at the part where they like meet up in the hallway, like Ian and Ben meet up in the hallway and he's like waiting for the elevator door to close. And they're like shooting at the declaration that's in the like bulletproof case that every time I watch it, I get really anxious at like that moment. Another stressful moment is when Ben, Riley and Abigail are trying to evade Ian's crew in Philadelphia and decide to split up to keep the bifocals and declaration separate. That was another scene that like stressed me out because I think like if I'm remembering correctly, they don't like at first show who has what like, well, I guess, yeah, no, they kind of don't, they don't really say until um, Ben throws the like canister, the red one um, off the roof and the guy finds it and there's nothing in it. But like, in that moment, I just always think of like, if I were there, what would I do? And I would not have thought to split it up that way. Um, but yeah, that always, that scene stresses me out. <laughs> this is also a film about family and how sometimes seemingly tall tales from your grandpa transform into lifelong obsessions. But there, there is an interesting part, especially when he gets to his dad's house that I thought of and just how, um, you know, earlier in the film, he talked about, they asked him, are you like, are you treasure hunters? They're like, no, we're more like treasure protectors. Um, and I think, I think um, uh, Riley, Riley accused Ben of being obsessed at one point. And then Ben replied, you know, we're one step short of crazy and passionate um, and how he had made this big deal of a hundred years of searching, but it's only three feet away to this map. You know, I, I was just curious how you feel like this movie kind of looks at um, this. I mean, really it is an obsession, right? And you mentioned how he's been kind of looking for it his whole life and it's been passed down from generation to generation um, how do you feel like this movie kind of looks at that obsession of the Gates family to not even not even get the riches of the treasure, but just to like know that it's real? I think the way that they frame it is interesting because obviously like when you think of a treasure hunter, you think someone wants to like find treasure and find all this gold and take it for themselves. So they can have money or they can have relics, whatever. Um, and I think it's really interesting that they just make it so that like, these are people that just really love history and want to preserve history so that more people can um, like learn history and go to museums and see these things. So I thought that was a really like different way to frame it. And obviously like in the moment when they're in the ship and um, Ben's like, well, I need to steal the declaration so that Ian doesn't and destroys it or takes all the treasure and ruins it and hides it from everyone. Like he wants to do it. Um, so that everyone can have it and share it. And I think that's what's like important about history is that everyone is able to like experience it. So yeah, I liked, I liked that framework. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and obviously one of the big things is when uh, Ben and his dad are kind of saying, oh, they need to keep the status quo. And when the status, status quo changes, then that's when their lives can be at stake. Um, but, you know, that relationship between father and son is something I kind of wanted to tap into a little bit because I, I, I wish I had written down who said this quote, but I think it was his dad that said, 
maybe that's the real Gates family legacy, sons who disappoint their fathers. Uh, there's some severe daddy issues um, in this movie. Uh, how do you feel like it explores just that father-son dynamic and how they, uh, they really don't get along that well? Yeah, well, I think it shows Ben's passion because like from the start when he learned the story, you could tell like he was very invested and then like it breaks the like kind of magic of the moment with his dad in the very beginning being like, you're just telling this story over again. It's not real. And um, just the fact that like they went to his dad's house and they obviously hadn't like spoken in a very long time. And it kind of like breaks down their issues as they kind of progress throughout the movie. And then I feel like just throughout the whole movie is like proving everyone wrong. Like, told the FBI and Homeland Security someone's going to steal the declaration. They don't believe him. And then someone does and then tells his dad that there's treasure and he doesn't believe it. And then there is. And so, yeah, I feel like it kind of just showed how like under pressure their relationship was able to like finally be fixed. But yeah, I think it also just showed his passion. And I couldn't finish this conversation without mentioning my guy Harvey Keitel who plays a Freemason FBI agent named Sadusky, and of course, Ben and company finding the treasure. Um, you know, they meet at that USS Intrepid. Um, you know, Harvey Keitel and his FBI guys, you know, they, they try to, they try to uh, set something up, but then Ian jams the signal and all that. But that really leads up to, of course, them all reuniting and um, finding the treasure, you know, and, and finding and um, initially kind of going into that cavern. I think it's like, uh, Parkington Lane or whatever back into that grave um, and, and going down the hall and then Ian ends up leaving them there and you know they give him a fake clue to send him to Boston or whatever what did you think of just the sequence of um, you know finally after all of these all of these different misdirects after all of these different clues that they've gotten they finally get down to there to where it is and turns out the treasure's actually there I thought it kind of like was a it was like summing up like the reason that Ben wanted to find the treasure in the first place that like he just wanted it so that people could experience it because like obviously Ian really wanted the treasure and like some could say arguably more than Ben did um but he didn't know the history as well as Ben he didn't understand like the implications of finding it and what it would be like to find it um so just the way that Ben and his dad were both like they gave the fake clue because they knew that he would believe them because he didn't truly like, maybe he didn't want to find it for the right reasons or, <laughs> you know, um, you can get like philosophical about it. But um, yeah. And I think that scene, I thought they kind of like played it out well because first they have like that moment where it's like emotions going up and down where, Oh my God, they're left in this like, tomb underground like New York City how are they ever going to get out and then Ben is so confident that he's like he says the line of like there's always another way out or something like that and they find they like move the door and they think they find it and then you know emotions go down because they're like wait the treasure's gone like what are we doing and then and actually find it I thought that was that was a fun little way because I, I, it would just be too too easy for them to be like oh, there's another way out, and then open the door, and then treasure's there. National Treasure, for all the memes and mockery and valid criticisms, is a movie that, 
as Lucy says, is accessible for all ages. So it has romance, it has um, action, it has mystery, it has history, it has just something for everyone. And I think everyone will enjoy some part of it. And I think it like kind of brings all that together in a cohesive unit. (laughs) Um, And it's just interesting. I said interesting a lot. (laughs) That's okay. It's okay. This is definitely an interesting movie. Next up, the origin story of a socially inept man who found a way to connect us all. My name is Wyatt Hall and my favorite movie is The Social Network. Wyatt Hall, another current KU student, says he first got into movies around 2015. Before then I was more of a TV show watcher, but then I really started to dive into movies more and I will say I have a more extensive knowledge of modern film than, than you know, old-timey historical film, although I'm working my way back as much as I can. Um, but yeah, I just, I try to see as many movies as I can every year. It's just, it's a nice little escapism um, for all of us. I, I love the meaning behind a lot of movies. That's kind of what I drift towards. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my, you know, Fast and Furious and Marvel movies and all those that are just like brainless entertainment. But um, the ones that really that really resonate with me are the ones that you can see that they put in a lot of effort towards putting a meaning behind it. Um, so that's generally what I drift towards. And the movie that we're talking about today was really what kind of jumpstarted all of that for me. Um, and I'm I don't know. I, I love movies. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's why you're here, man. Um, I guess kind of a jumping off point from that. Uh, what's your relationship to the work of David Fincher? Yeah. So David Fincher is someone that I did not know existed before I watched the social network back in my teenage years. Since then I've gotten, it, it kind of sucks. I really got into David Fincher once he started really slowing down on making things I mean, Mank was his first movie since, what, 2014? Yep. And I just, I love, I just love the way he does things. I just, I feel like he brings a a nice um, atmosphere to every movie that he makes. And they're always engaging, no matter the material that it is. And that's, and, and I think just everything about them is so good. And, and I think the one thing that makes the social network in particular stand out to me is alongside David Fincher, I think Aaron Sorkin was the perfect pair for that. I, I almost, people have talked about, I may be getting ahead of myself here, but people have been talking about the idea of a social network sequel. And I almost just don't want that to happen because I feel like the social network is so good at showcasing the best of David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. And I kind of just want to leave it at that. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if they need to make more projects together, even if I won't complain if they do, but you know, I just would almost rather just leave it at that. As for his pick, Wyatt narrowed it down to Whiplash, La La Land and the social network. And the thing for Whiplash and La La Land is I think they mean less to me as singular movies and more to me as I am just a massive fan of Damien Chazelle. Um, I love all of his work. I am excited to see what he does more. I think he's one of the best young directors in Hollywood, like point blank, just full, I don't know. That's, he's just, he's very exciting. 
But The Social Network is, as I said earlier, it's the movie that got me into movies. And I feel like that's an important one to talk about why it's that meaningful to me. And, you know, I love everything about it. And there's just so many different elements to it that we could talk about. And I think that's, it's, it's exciting to explore it in that way, because you could talk about the score, you could talk about the acting, you could talk about the script, the cinematography, the, the way it just predicted social media usage in the modern era. I mean, this movie came out 10 years ago and it's still extremely relevant. So that's, that's kind of what led me towards talking about this one in particular, just because there's so many different aspects to it and it's meaningful to me in a significant way. And a lot of people think it's the best movie of the 2010s and I agree. So it's worth discussing. From 2010, The Social Network, written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by David Fincher, follows Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who becomes famous practically overnight after programming a blog called Face Mash to rate women at Harvard that eventually transforms into the social media platform known as Facebook. The rise to tech titan is quick and tumultuous, as Mark steps over people he once called partners and friends in order to continue to grow the platform and gain notoriety. This results in him landing in two separate lawsuits, the first with the Winklevoss twins and Divya Narenda from Harvard, who claim he stole the idea from them, and the second with Eduardo Saverin, Mark's former friend and business partner who Mark essentially shoved out of the company Eduardo co-created. This creates a Rashomon-esque story as three different versions of the truth are told in the deposition rooms. Nominated for eight Oscars, including wins for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score, this is a story of a man who made a social media platform with 500 million users that doesn't know how to communicate in real life. Do you remember the first time watching this? Yeah, I actually watched it with my mom on some like cable network or something. I don't remember. It was just on TV right as it started. And we thought it sounded interesting. So I was like, I'll watch this. And I was just blown away by it. Um, even with, you know, some of the stuff being censored because it's cable. Uh, I went back and rewatched it later for just like the full non cable censored experience. But even then it was just like everything about it. I, Jesse Eisenberg drew me in. Um, the subject matter was interesting back then because I mean, 2015 is prime Facebook time, prime, you know, it's, it was at its peak. I don't, some people say it's still like a pretty strong platform. I do think it's kind of declining, but maybe that's just my opinion. I don't know, but it was just, it was, it was relevant. It was, as I said earlier, engaging and, from that point on, it just led me to watch more and more and more. Um, how do you find, as you go back to it, that uh, either maybe you enjoy it more, pick up new things? How, how does it, how does, um, how you take in the social network, how has that changed over the years as you've kind of gone back to it and grown yourself? Yeah, I rewatched it a few months ago when they added it to Netflix. Um, and that was the most recent time I've rewatched it. And it's, it just, it never gets old to me. I don't, it might be a movie that I could see some people being like, I don't know if I want to rewatch this, but for me personally, I, it's one of those that every time I watch it, it's a new experience. And as you said, you pick up on more things. And I think it, it sh I think it is aged really well. Um, not only the quality of the movie, but 
as we mentioned, it's, it's still extremely relevant to today to the point that they're talking about a sequel for it. Um, it, it just shows how smart they were in making this movie at the time they did when they knew, yeah, this is going to have a long-term impact. And so we're going to make a movie about this. You're going to watch this 10 years later and be like, wow, they really knew what they were talking about. Right. And, and I also find that uh, that's not only is this prescient in a fact of obviously Facebook blew up even past this, but I find that the casting is very prescient in the fact of this is Andrew Garfield before he becomes Spider-Man. This is Jesse Eisenberg. People had kind of seen him in some stuff, but then he kind of blew up after this. I think Zombieland might've been the year before, but still Army Hammer. This was kind of a lot of people's introduction to him. Um, Rooney Mara, uh, pre 50 shades, Dakota Johnson, um, Rashida Jones, Brenda song. Uh, I mean, th- this cast is just kind of loaded. And, and so I guess my question is what performances from this, uh, from this, uh, movie kind of stick out to you? Uh, I know everybody talks about Jesse Eisenberg, but I think Andrew Garfield deserves the conversation that he doesn't get enough of. Um, his, the scene where he realizes that he's getting cut out of the company um, and then goes up and just screams at Zuckerberg is legitimately one of the best scenes in any movie that I've ever seen. It's so good. The emotions are so high, but it's portrayed so well. And there's a big part of that being like the buildup and the music and everything else. But I, I mean, if Garfield didn't give the performance that he did, I don't know if that scene would have been the same. I don't know if the movie would have been the same. Sure. Yeah. And I, I feel like this movie definitely is focused with its eyes on the future and its eyes on, uh, I mean, I mean, they bring Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I mean, Trent Reznor hadn't worked on a, on a film score since natural born killers from the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I mean, it feels like this, this movie's eyes really are, I mean, it's in 2010 set in like the early two thousands, but its eyes are really on the future. And, and I guess, how, how do you kind of feel as this movie not only is a time capsule, but also kind of just like a window into what we eventually became. It's it's kind of funny that you mentioned the cast earlier because it was something I was thinking about where this was a big budget movie with not a whole lot of recognizable names at the time. And we look at it now and we're like, that's crazy that none of these people were well known, but all those names that you listed a good portion of them are like a level a tier celebrities right now. And they were not that 10 years ago. It's like, it's like another version of super bad where there's all these, you go back and you watch this movie from all those years ago and you're like, it's so weird seeing all these people in the same movie. And it's just, it's a great time capsule. Like you said, I actually, I have a poster for the social network on my wall and the tagline from the movie is you don't get to 500 friends without making a few enemies. 500 million friends without making a few enemies. I'm sitting here thinking 500 million sounds so weird because Facebook has what, two, three billion users now? That's mm-hmm. just, it shows how, how, uh, like how long ago that this was. And yet, as I've said numerous times on this podcast already, it, it showed the future, it showed the impact that Facebook would have on, on social relationships and on tech as a whole and how we interact with other people. It was all just massively changed by this one application, this one website. Yeah. And, 
And you mentioned that that key word there, relationships, and and really that is kind of the foundation of this movie. I mean, you're you're thrown right in immediately um, to that breakup scene between Rooney Mara and Jesse Eisenberg with that basically trademark uh, Sorkin dialogue, just bouncing back and forth, back and forth, mm-hmm. and just how that how that's cut so well. Um, I, f- I feel like that. I feel like that's kind of a, a good place to kind of dig in. Is how do you feel like this movie portrays relationships, not only romantically but um friendships business relationships and how that's really kind of what mark is juggling as he is kind of becoming this i guess tech tycoon for lack of a better term yeah i mean at the very core of this movie it is a story about a man who does not know how to connect with people so he creates a way to connect with people and i think that's a great way to sum it up because throughout you see you see Zuckerberg struggling with this this um, love interest. Love interest. Love interest. Yeah. Throughout the movie, he is he's struggling with uh, this love interest and how he's constantly being an asshole to her, but still wants her affection at the very foundation of the relationship. And he struggles with balancing his friendships while he's getting caught up in you know, Justin Timberlake coming in and showing him how much money that he can make off of this application. And he just, he struggles with the people around him. And I think that is perfectly summed up right at the end when he finally makes it, he finally has become what he was striving to be. And so he sends a friend request to that girl that they started the movie with. And I just think that is, it's, it's a nice, like beginning and conclusion connecting to really show that message I said earlier about this, this man did not know how to connect with people. So he made his own way of connecting. There's also something to be said for how Sorkin and Fincher's seemingly different styles came together to create this film. Do you find this to be a cynical movie or an idealistic movie? Cause I feel like Fincher, as we kind of mentioned earlier, he is very, he's very cold. He's very clinical. I mean, that's how he structures his thrillers um, kind of from this almost cynical aspect, but Sorkin, in a way, through his writing, is almost idealistic. And so those two forces are kind of butting heads throughout this. Do, do you, I guess, do you find this movie to be cynical or idealistic? I think a lot of the cynical vibe, besides everything that Fincher did there, I think a lot of it actually comes from Eisenberg's performance. The way that he portrays Mark Zuckerberg is, is very cynical of the man himself, I, I believe. And I think that idealistic factor is kind of another force from the main supporting actor, which is Andrew Garfield. And it really, I mean, it shows what you just said of the forces butting heads, not only behind the scenes, but on screen. And so, yeah, I I agree with you. I don't, I don't know if it is, you know, binary one or the other. I think it is those forces struggling throughout the movie and they show that in multiple ways. Right. And, and throughout the movie, obviously, we, we see the creation of Facebook at Harvard and how it kind of continues to grow and go into the business space. But also a key part of this, of course, is shown uh, in two separate lawsuits as Mark is sued by the Winklevoss Collective, but also by his uh, former, I guess I can really put friend in air quotes, uh, Eduardo. And so uh, what do you think of the structure of this movie? Because, I mean, early on, we kind of know how it ends. From the from pretty from the get go, we kind of know where this is going. What do you what do you think of that choice and how they kind of structured this story? 
I think it was uh, I think it was an, a unique choice, but I also thought it brought you know a different type of pacing that kept you in because you're kind of you're wanting to see where is this going? How did it get to this point? These guys seem like such close friends, but also when we cut away to the lawsuit stuff, they seem like they hate each other. And it's just something that kind of like grabs you, I think. So I, I think it was obviously purposeful. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of like layers to the meaning to it, but at its very core, it just, it keeps you going. This is a, I mean, this is a movie about a programmer who made a website, you know? So you got to find ways to really, really make it engaging and keep you in the movie. And I think that was one way that they did it really well. Right. And, and I feel like another way is um, this almost like frenetic pacing. I, I, feel, I feel like this movie, it just, just goes and goes and goes. And even as you're sitting in those, uh, in those, I guess, uh, like during the lawsuits, even you, you kind of, you kind of feel this pal- palpable tension. I mean, I even think of, I think of the moment probably at the, at the peak of that is when they're hired, when they're basically, they hired all those uh, hackers to basically whoever, whoever can hack through the firewall. God, I fast love that scene. <laughs> can, can work a part of Facebook and you just, I mean, you're just looking all over the place and you're kind of in Eduardo's shoes there of just like, this is what it's become. Like we're- This is overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, do, do you kind of feel that overwhelming sense? And is that kind of exciting as you watch this? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of it is that pace is, it makes, the movie goes by so fast. Every time I watch it, I'm blown away by how quickly it feels it's over. And it's because of that pacing. And I think that's a big part of it because if this movie was slowly paced- I don't know, it'd probably get boring realistically, but keeping up that pace really, it makes this crazy story out of us. I mean, it, it is a crazy story, but it makes it larger than life almost because it's like, oh my God, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. And it's all one right after another. And it's just, it's so chaotic, but in a good way. Right. And, and, and I feel like it, it's interesting because in another sense, uh, the that Reznor Ross score uh, doesn't doesn't always feel as so. I, I feel like it's almost it's almost kind of a careful antithesis of of like all this all this craziness going on, and then you kind of have this Reznor Ross score kind of going along, going along, kind of carrying you along there. What what do you think of the score of this movie? Um, obviously, they won the Oscar for it. Uh, what do you think of the music choices here? Yeah, so there's there's clearly some songs on there that really drive it home forward. But like, as you said, even the main theme, for example, is this this quiet but ominous kind of piano being played. And I go back to that song a lot. I I really dig it just because it feels it feels unnerving and and unhinged, but like trying to navigate your way through those feelings almost that's probably a weird way to describe it but that's just how i feel listening to that song and a lot of the score uh, i think a lot of the songs on it are also just fun like the hall of the mountain king remix is just so fun to listen to man yeah i every time i see music from those two now um like didn't one of them made the soundtrack for soul right so they both worked on Mank and Soul this past year. Okay, yeah. yeah. Whenever I see soundtracks from them, I get excited. I get excited about Soul. I didn't know they made the Mank one, so I will go back and look into that. But 
when I went through and watched Soul, I'm like, yeah, I just, I dig anything that these two make. <laughs> Looking back 11 years later, it's a bit easier to evaluate the film. It's also easier to be upset that David Fincher and The Social Network lost Best Director and Best Picture to Tom Hooper in The King's Speech, or how Andrew Garfield wasn't nominated for an Oscar at all. But putting the awards aside, another aspect of this movie, especially with people's Best of the Decade lists, is how it stacks up against other 2010s movies. Uh, Social Network came out first year of the decade, um, and really kind of started off the decade in film, at least, um, from a very high, a very high point. And mm-hmm. some people still think that that's the peak of it. I, I know you kind of mentioned it earlier. Uh, why do you think that this is the best movie of the decade? Oh, that is a loaded question. I think the reason I think it's the best is just the summation of all the parts of it. Because as I, as I mentioned earlier, Everything about this movie makes it into a masterpiece. I think the score is phenomenal. The performance are amazing. The writing is so good. The direction and the cinematography is great. And it all just comes together into this, this just absolutely perfect work of art. And there's a lot of movies that I think have shown that as well. I think one that we all have been thinking about recently is Parasite, how it just, it brings together all of those essential key parts. And that's one of the reasons why I love that movie so much. I think it was top probably three of the decade, if not five. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I just, I think it, I think that's that's the best way of putting it. The summation of the parts is so good every piece stands on its own and is memorable on its own. And that really makes it stand apart. And so whether it's for the cast, the pacing, or the prescient nature of the film, The Social Network is certainly worth checking out. If you're looking for a movie that will just make time fly by, it'll teach you a little bit about pop culture history and how, um, Things have been attached to social media. If you want to see some of the uh, greatest stars of our time in their early baby phases of their career, this is the movie for you. It's so good. The music is so good. The performances are so good. As I said, you will turn this on and it'll be over like that before you even realize it was going. You know, it's it's just it's it's a masterpiece. My name is Elmer Guardado, and my favorite movie is Moneyball. When I asked Elmer Guardado about his relationship to movies, he went back to a simpler time, when we reaped the benefits of one of the worst business plans of all time. I think the best way to describe my relationship with movies is that the best six months of my life were the last six months of MoviePass. Um, I, I just love going to the movies. I love watching movies. It's just kind of always been there. You know, I grew up watching bad rom-coms with my mom and bad action movies with my dad. And then at some point I found a good movie and kind of started exploring other stuff too. And yeah, movies always been there.
Dude, I'm glad I'm glad somebody else uh, on here is a movie pass fan. You know, I don't <laughs> nobody else has brought that up. That was such a crazy summer. Oh my uh, god. The dude, wildest. It's, it's so crazy. Like I remember I saw this is a complete tangent, but mm. I remember I saw um that John Travolta film Gotti. Oh man, um, that's a that's a movie pass movie. <laughs> it's a movie pass movie. Like I think they had even like partly funded it or something. Yep. I basically saw that one for free and that was it was like the greatest summer of my life. Oh yeah. I can't, I mean, it was, it was straight up multiple movies a week at times and it just the excuse to kind of be able to do it without any expectations was a really just wild way to see movies that in my head, I would have been like, Oh, I'll watch that at home. But odds are, you know, some of them are going to slip through the cracks. So it was just nice, you know, to go see, I'm trying to think what like even the worst movie pass movie was for some reason, like my strongest memory is just like when it all started to end with Mission Impossible uh, right. Five or, or Fallout, uh-huh. um, you know, and just all of a sudden, it's just like, yeah, you can't get this movie ticket. <laughs> Dude, that, that was such a sad day, and you know, I, it, it's honestly like a, a horrible business strategy, and like, oh, it's yeah. not a surprise that they like bankrupted or whatever. But it was, it was great for the consumer. I'll say that. Yeah, it's the kind of idea where like it makes you feel guilty while you're using it. You're like, you keep expecting it to like not work every time, right. <laughs> and you wouldn't be mad. You would be like, yeah, that makes sense. There was, I mean, there was a time, like the last like few weeks of it, I basically would go every time to the theater. I'm like, it's going to get declined. It's yep. going to get declined. And then it kept working. But it's beautiful. Uh, it was amazing. Um, sorry to circle back to this. No, so, um, you know, uh, before we get too deep in the money ball, I just wanted to ask you um, sports movies. Uh, what, what do you kind of stand on sports movies? I mean, is it just money ball? Or is that kind of a, a subgenre, if you will, that kind of sticks out as some of your favorites? I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of sports movies that I, I like. And there's probably no surprises, right? Like The Sandlot is a great movie, right? No argument needed. Um, I don't think there's many arguments needed for Moneyball, but I'm sure we'll get to them. But it's not like um, that's a speci- that's not even like a top 10 subgenre within a film that I would jump to as like, that's my thing. Like off the top of my head, the, the other really, like I think in the top three of best sports movies is Semi-Pro, uh, which is just a great Will Ferrell movie. And it's one that wildly holds up today still, but it's also about a weird, real historic moment in NBA history. I'm not a basketball guy. Like I've never followed basketball, but I'm just so compelled by like, yes, give me a history lesson yeah. and Will Ferrell gags. Like I'm down for this. So yeah, I wouldn't say s- sports movies are my thing. So it is, I guess, interesting that Moneyball rises to the top that way. We can talk about it, but because of Moneyball, I basically started watching real baseball. <laughs> so now it like makes more sense for people who know me today. But like at the time of this movie's release and since I fell in love with it, definitely kind of like an outlier, was not even a fan of baseball remotely. Yeah, I was going to ask you, that was going to be my next question, was if you were a big fan of baseball. So, I mean, what what made you seek out this movie, you know, if you didn't have that prior connection to baseball or just even the book in general? There's, there's, there's so many things. And that's kind of the beautiful thing about Moneyball is that every piece of the pie is so rich. Like, we can just start with actors. Like, am I not going to see a Brad Pitt movie? Like, that's just kind of a default, Right. And then on top of that, like second build, Jonah Hill, he's not, he, this is like his, he had done, I think um, the Sean Penn movie, I'm forgetting, but 
this is like kind of him being recognized on a larger scale as like a dramatic actor. And he does such a opposite performance, like the most opposite you can imagine. And it's, it's, I mean, that's the reason to go see this movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman is third build, like with the greatest actor of all time, rest in peace, you know, like uh, Robin Wright's in this, <laughs> like Chris Pratt's in this, like this, it, it's a really like awesome cast. So there's reasons to go see this on top of that. You know, I know the, the production of it gets a little uh, a messy, but it's an Aaron Sorkin screenplay, which again is kind of like a given to me. Like, I'm going to see that because even when he misses, it's still like good soap ops drama at the at like worst. And I'll say like Bennett Miller is kind of like the part of the formula that is not, um, you know, I like Capote. Foxcatcher is, I don't know, I probably need to watch it again. It's got a vibe though. Like, that's the thing. I remember feeling like this movie's got a vibe. I'm not sure that I've, I've totally followed this movie. Um, but uh, that was kind of like a surprising piece of the pie that I wasn't, you know, now I, I guess I'm a Bennett Miller fan, but I, I, you know, that's kind of another interesting thing where I think this is like one of the best movies, but it's not one of my like favorite directors or something like that. So yeah, I think I can't even tell you like a, a good bet is probably that Brad Pitt's put me in a seat to see this movie first, but it definitely wasn't baseball. It definitely wasn't like the subject matter of this film at all. Okay, so the key players in front of and behind the camera got Elmer to buy in initially. But still, I had to ask, why pick Moneyball as your quote-unquote favorite movie? Money, I think Moneyball does two of my favorite things that movies can do to me, right? And I think one is to just kind of embrace the fact that you don't have to be a literal depiction of something and give me the most effective visual audio way, sensory way to experience a feeling, right? Like whatever that is, there's so many movies that you're just like, no matter any, any other uh, critical thing you could say about it, there's just something there that's working and, and making you feel something. And Moneyball does that to me. And then on top of that, it's like always cool when like, someone who feels guilty maybe about like consuming too much media or, or, or watching too many movies. It's always good when you watch a movie and you're like, I'm also learning something. This is a history lesson. So that's just cool. Like both of those things, I just, I just kind of love them. And that's kind of like the overall, like why Moneyball just kind of jumps to me as like, it executes both of those things at such a high level. And it's the movie that I can go back to there's certain scenes on YouTube that I can put on to get that feeling when I need it, like in a practical, like, like life preserver way. It's like, man, I need to, f I know this movie can make me feel good. can make me feel inspired. Let me watch the scene and, and get in that moment. So this movie has just stood the test of time for me. From 2011, Moneyball, written by Aaron Sorkin and Steven Zalian and directed by Bennett Miller, follows the story of Oakland Athletics general manager Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, who's trying to stay competitive after the team just lost in the 2001 ALDS to the New York Yankees. To make matters worse, the A's also lost Johnny Damon, Jason Giambi, and Jason Isringhausen to free agency. So Billy decides to essentially start from scratch and build the team on a minuscule budget, much to the chagrin of his scouting department and his manager Art Howe, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Billy also nabs Peter Brand, played by Jonah Hill, from the Cleveland Indians, an analytics wonderkin who helps Billy see player evaluation in a revolutionary way. In turn, the two change baseball as we know it, en route to a record-breaking win streak and helping to usher in this new era of sports analytics. 
nominated for six Oscars, including nods for both Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. It's a sports film that's about two men quite literally changing the game. What do you remember about your first time watching it? I think my initial feelings when I saw this movie were cool. Jonah Hill, like that's wild. That's, that's interesting. That's just good for his career. And I don't think I appreciated this movie at the level I do now. And it's funny because this movie sparked an interest in real life baseball, like to the point now where it's an obsession, you know, like I'm watching a lot of baseball when baseball's on and I'm like a baseball nerd about it now. I love looking at numbers and spreadsheets and weird, like old videos that I wasn't alive for. And since my love has of baseball has grown, like it's obviously only increased my appreciation and like, uh, I guess the relevance of this movie in my life, uh, just like culturally. But yeah, I think initial feeling, it's just like, all right, Jonah Hill was weird. That was an interesting movie. Like, I guess I learned something, but cool. Like the lesson of, you know, I'm not a sports guy in general, but the way I got into sports and has always been through the stories, the drama, right? Give me like a documentary about it. Give me like these weird YouTube channels that are like, hey, remember this one pass a hundred years ago that, you know, did this and this and that. It's like, I love those rabbit holes now. And it's always at the core. It's like the people who can tell the story, like the drama of it, because conflict is so clear in sports. That's why they rule in movies. And that's why baseball specifically is fantastic in movies. There's a clear pitcher, batter. Like it's so obvious what's happening visually. It's like a Western. It's like a Mexican standoff. It's, it's like the conflict is so clear, right? So when you add then like dr- the seasoning of good drama and good character, it's obviously going to be compelling. It just, the momentum is there. Your brain understands it in a real way. Now, let's go back to Brad Pitt's performance as Billy Bean. Dude, when he throws things in this movie, it's the absolute greatest, just, oh my God. I, I, I don't even, I, I, I'm almost like at a loss for words, but he is just so good and calm and collected in this movie. And he does this thing where, he's always eating in films. He's always just like, he's got some like kind of like anxious behavior going on and it, he just vibes with it so well in this movie, the scene where he is, uh, he fires the, the scout, the head scout Brady, who, by the way, fun fact, that guy is an ex real baseball player who is a real life scout who actually hates Billy Bean, like through the movie, he is a man who actually hates Billy Bean and his quote is saying Billy Bean ruined baseball. Um, so that's awesome, right? You have like the most, the, the most honest performance ever, but like that scene where he's firing Brady and you know, he's like keeping that cool smile, but he's so furious and every now and then he explodes and throws a chair. It's just such a kinetic performance, man. And Brad Pitt, I think, is one of those guys that can really, his talent is kind of just being there. It's almost, it's, I think Tom Hanks has kind of the same thing where like, you kind of just start believing that like, oh, this guy just wants to go home. This guy just wants to do his job. Like they just exist in these roles in such a human way that it's like, you almost want to call it devoid of character because it's so reserved and natural, but it like, that's why it hits you so hard. Right. Like, I think one of my um, biggest criticisms of this movie for the longest time was the daughter scenes that I think just kind of take away every now and then from the movie. And like, they don't hurt. Like, I think especially like when you have Robin Wright and 
randomly spike Jones in this movie. You know, like those scenes are, are awesome and they're good for Billy's character. But just the song, I thought, you know, it's like, well, this is a 2011 song. Like that kind of ages the movie in a weird way. Um, but then I was like, shut up. This is a movie about, you know, something happened 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And honestly, it's interesting, like not to jump around too much, but it, I, I I understand the criticism of, you know, the daughter stuff and all the family on the side. But mm-hmm. I got to be honest, this last rewatch, and I, I've, this is the third or fourth time watching it now, at least. But um, that on this last rewatch, just that song playing at the end as he's driving and like contemplating the Boston decision, it hits you, man. It hits, it hits hard. It hits really, really hard. It, it totally has grown on me. And I think that's also just like, hey, you develop empathy, hopefully, as you get older. And, and you know, you start to just engage with things a little bit differently than however old I was when this movie came out. But um, I, I definitely think like even that stuff, right? How he's just kind of like being a dad in the same way he's just being a coach or a manager, right? Like it, it's, it's such a natural performance that it's like it's so it's so small <laughs> it's, and Jonah Hill does it too right even though but even even though Bill, uh, Brad Pitt is doing Billy Bean so small he's still like a jack dude right because Billy Bean was like this I mean he's an ex-athlete right like he still sells like the intimidation when he shuts down them celebrating after losing that's what losing sounds like is just what a moment like that dude's scary I, I would not be shocked if he just started swinging at these kids like it's it's yeah he he is he hit so many different ends of the spectrum and and different ranges in this performance that yeah i mean it's it's awesome one of my one of my personal favorite parts of this uh story are the basically like the war flashbacks he has to um his playing days and you know had yeah, that Stanford scholarship on the line, but he ended up going uh, to the pros. He gets drafted by the Mets first round. They think he's this like five tool prodigy, all this stuff. And then it just goes out in flames. And, you know, he's haunted by this past um, in the same way. I would say the A's are as those, you know, those championship banners mm-hmm. are. I'm just curious what you thought of that element of how, you know, he and the organization he works for are trying to exercise these demons. Yeah, I think it's interesting because not only does it obviously help, you know, with the insight of the character and kind of understanding where he's coming from, but outside of that smaller personal conflict, you also explore like this larger conflict of like systems, right? Like this is a man trying to change a system. And it's kind of an interesting conundrum that now he's on this end of the system, right? And he has all these raw feelings about it. So he's kind of and, you know, I, I'm, the real history of this, you know, let's not even get into that. It, you know, Billy Bean and, and all that is a, is a whole thing. But, you know, the way this movie depicts it, you know, like the, the man versus the system. And now he's on the other end of the system. And he kind of has to, like, treat these players in the way he was treated, but maybe even worse, right? Like, but there's also a beautiful thing about, like, these undervalued people getting an opportunity, but they're also getting paid nothing like less than they're worth so it's such a just nuanced situation that i think is is on top of like the the you know the conflict of this movie isn't even through baseball really like we can get to the streak scene and all that stuff that that absolutely rules the actual baseball in this movie but like to me the the primary conflict is just that it's like just just this man carrying the weight but knowing like he kind of can and should tear the system down because it's it's broken. 
Uh, one more thing on Billy. Um, taking taking the the actual history out of it, like we are. Um, do you think he should have gone to Boston? Uh, in the movie or in <laughs> real well, life? <laughs> real life is tricky because yeah. you know the Red Sox and uh, we all, we know all that now. But just yeah. even in the context of the film. You know, when he slides the offer across the table, he'd be the highest paid GM of all time. Like, do you feel like he should have just taken that job? No, I think he can't because that is, I think, literally why we have the daughter stuff. That is what anchors us back. Like, that's why he doesn't take it, you know, because he doesn't actually have any, uh, which I, I love that they represented this accurately, apparently. You know, he has zero affinity for Oakland or the A's. It doesn't, it seems like such a like business relationship, but you know, you, they're using kind of that daughter angle to give them a reason to stay, stay home. Um, which in real life, you know, who kind of knows what that looked like. Right. But I think, I think in this movie, he can't, he can't take that money because I guess if you want this movie to just be about like a guy who wins, like you take the daughter stuff out and you know, he takes that check. Um, but that scene by the way is awesome. That great monologue from the guy who plays the Red Sox owner uh, or manager, whatever um, about how, you know, the first man through the gate is going to get hurt the most or something like that. Right. And just saying how like the system is changing, like anyone who isn't doing what you're, it's like, that's him winning. They don't win in actual baseball that scene is him winning. So he didn't need to take the money to win because I do think, you know, this, they also do paint him as like a modest man, you know, his house is like lame. <laughs> so it's, it, I don't, I, I do think they do a lot to kind of set up why he would obviously not take the money and not make you feel kind of like upset with that decision. Um, well, let's get into the baseball a little bit here. And, you know, we open, you know, that 2001 ALDS against the Yankees, A's end up losing, ship out Giambi, Damon, Isrenhausen, all, all those guys. And, you know, we get back. It's a small market team. He has the classic line, you know, there are rich teams, there are poor teams, and there's 50 feet of crap, then there's us. Um, and, you know, I feel like immediately this film makes you, like, invites you in the clubhouse, really does it. I feel like they're really trying to make this, like, as authentic as possible. And... I was just curious what you thought of those, you know, those, those, I guess, subtle nuances that they kind of, that Bennett Miller and team kind of in Sorkin, I guess, uh, to an extent, but um, that they kind of, you know, infused into this film, whether it's, you know, meeting with different GMs or, you know, talking in a scout room or even just showing like, you know, real life footage. How do you, how do you feel like they kind of captured this moment in time in baseball? I think they captured it well, you know, because now that I'm listening to a lot of uh, major leaguers on podcasts being interviewed and talk about how disgusting the Oakland A's facility is, sounds like they captured it accurately. Um, but I also really like, you know, Bennett Miller did a, a documentary first, which I haven't seen, but you can kind of tell this guy like has done documentary stuff. Because not only does he use real life footage in one of the greatest movie scenes of all time, The Streak, but he also kind of just, you know, there's this great scene where Billy Bean finally watches a baseball game, right? And all of a sudden we're met with like new camera work that hasn't been in the movie at all. It's like over the shoulder, super like low and tight to kind of get his perspective on like the ground level of the diamond, you know, and 
the baseball just feels real because even in those scenes where they have the actors, you know, they're doing it in slow motion. They're doing smart stuff to like, also I read too randomly that Chris Pratt's the only actor on the team that didn't actually play baseball. So that was also smart, I guess, to get people who could actually kind of do it. But I thought the baseball in this movie was captured perfectly. Like it was like when you need the impressive stuff, you give me the real baseball. (laughs) And when you need the dramatic stuff, you give me the actors. And that was such a good balance. And just like, yeah, I think this movie is shot like incredibly well. Like the, the, the claustrophobia he's able to create in the locker room. He does these wild punch-ins where like, it's like literally the same angle and it's just like immediate cut in. And it's just like, so hard. So like, Hey, now you're in his head. Look at what he's feeling. And that's where we get like the, the, these beautiful moments with like all these amazing actors. Um, and you know, that, that's kind of where I was going with this is there, there is this huge, I mean, inner and very outer terminal tor- turmoil as well with this new guard versus old guard mentality. You know, the old guard is a, all the, all the guys and the, all the shock jocks and the radio and all this stuff. And even like <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's like art, Howe in a lot of respects is like, this is my team. I know what I'm doing, Billy. You're not a, like, you're not a manager. You're a GM in the front office. Like, this is my team. Let me handle the lineup card. How do you feel like it kind of, you know, showcase this changing of the times, this passing of the torch, if you will, between, you know, the old way, the fundamentals, and this, like, hey, maybe we can win if, like, you know, we're buying wins and getting on base and kind of the money ball aspects of it. Yeah, I thought that was great, too, because that that is such natural conflict. Again, right, I think this movie just has is just a ripping with tension because every it's just like, yeah, it's the changing of the old guard and the new guard. It's like the taking down of the system, the establishment, also the rich guys, which is so easy to hate, right? Like there's so many points of tension and conflict. And I think the art how stuff is, is, is so, so awesome. Right. I think the real art how hates this movie because apparently you know, this is too convenient. This is very much an Aaron Sorkin moment that just makes is why the movie rules, right? This is there's this great uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance where he's just like, God damn it, let me just coach my team. He's like almost crying, pleading with Billy sometimes until he finally just gives up, right? And I thought they did a really good job of just like, not only literally explaining that conflict and tension through all of these examples and what's going on, but just like, again, that feeling we talked about early on where it can just... It's just, it's creating the feeling of the tough climb up the hill against changing what the old people, what the establishment, what, you know, the rich are like doing. And it all finally comes together in Elmer's favorite sequence of the entire film, the streak. When the A's finally start clicking on the field, the team rips off a then-American League record 20-game win streak during the 2002 season. And, you know, they, they, finally, they finally get there with this, uh, I mean, just incredibly epic uh, montage and sequence of, you know, they're finally letting the players in, like, to what they're, what they're trying to figure out with the computers and analytics and everything, and then finally it's on the field. Finally, they win. They win 16, 17, 18, all that stuff. I, I just... You know, we, we've talked about it. We've alluded to it enough. What are your thoughts on this sequence as the Oakland A's uh, set the new record and win 20 games in a row? I think it might be one of the greatest achievements in just like capturing moving image and sound. 
you know, I, 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 right before we got on for this podcast, I start, I watched that exact clip on YouTube. Uh, unfortunately, there's only a very low quality upload, but it's there. And I, I am near tears, like every time, like no hyperbole. I'm not even quick to tears. I'm not even quick to, you know, the, this level of emotion. But every time I see that scene, and I can't even tell you what, it's not, obviously not specifically what's happening in that scene. It's the music. It's the, the intent, the, the, the themes that you already know about the movie. It's just so, so beautiful, so impactful that like, yeah, like it's almost the least interesting stuff. It's what's actually happening, right? It's just like how those images made you feel, how that amazing. I mean, the absolute, what a banger score. I think one of my favorite scores of all time. It, it just works so, so well. And when you finally see, even if you think about it narratively and dramatically, you know, when you, when you finally see Art Howe, the guy who's been kind of like, you know, Billy Bean's either been kicking people off or like lining them up to like fall for him and like, you know, buy in. Um, and Art Howe was kind of like the last one that needed to drop. And right at the perfect moment, you know, we narratively set him up. Obviously, Aaron Sorkin moment, right? Uh, the most dramatic way. Who knows if it was even, uh, I think Hattenberg is the, the Chris Pratt baseball player name. Who knows if it, was, if it was even him? Who cares if that's what actually happened in real life? I don't care. It is so much better that it's Chris Pratt. And guess what? It's also, like we said, the one like non-baseball guy, so like a full actor. It's like, that works. Like that, that is just, that to me is like on the, the, the peak of what movies can do. Like if you're like, Obviously, it, it depends a lot on like understanding our culture, but you know, theoretically, if you were like to show like, hey, aliens, like we provide value through this medium, I think that's like one of those things you can you can show. It's hard not to be romantic about baseball. One of the greatest lines, I think. One of the like again, Aaron Sorkin, and I don't want to, you know, who, who's this other guy? The guy who wrote uh, who rewrote it, Stephen Zale, Zalen. We'll give him credit, but I mean, some of these moments are just like so Aaron Sorkin. Like, you just know, you just know, like, I can always imagine him just like cracking a little smile when he writes those lines, even if he's alone, like he knows, he knows what he did. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, in that, in that moment, or I don't remember, I may be conflating two scenes, but either in that same scene or a little later on, you know, Billy talks about how he obviously wants to get that championship and wants to get to the series, but not necessarily for the accolades or he doesn't necessarily want the credit. He just, he'd rather, he wants to be known for somebody changing the game. And, you know, I think, I feel like that's such a, that's such a powerful moment. And in a weird, like selfless way, like there's the, there's that scene before that, right before the streak where, you know, they, uh, they, on the TV, it says they won seven, they've won seven games in a row and it's all because of Art Howe and Jonah Hill's Peter Brand, it turns in, he's like, did you hear what they just said? And he, and the media response is, I heard we won seven games. And so I was just curious what you thought of that mindset that Billy Bean has. And he's like, basically like screw all the, all the like accolades, all that stuff. I just want to be known as a trailblazer. Yeah. There's something very interesting about that depiction, right? That just character choice to build someone who is going up against the impossible, you know, new ground, new territory, but he still has like a level of confidence and confidence in how he's carrying it. Like he almost knows like what the Boston Red Sox owner says at the end. Like he knows he's like, yeah, dude, I know I ate shit for a year because, but like I had to block it out. Like it was the way. So I think that's interesting. 
but it also might just be like, you know, that's kind of the desperation we're dealing with, you know, like the, the, the desperation of like, this is literally the last option. So we need to go all in. Like we are gambling and we are going all in. There, there's something so beautiful to that, just meta, meta, how it helps like, you know, the overall theme and just metaphors of the movie, right? There's also that beautiful, like, you know, they might even say it directly, but it's something about like the players and like who they really are, right? Like getting, getting down to who they really are. And we already talked about the problems with like, you're still underpaying them and all that stuff. But, you know, the, the, the romanticism about baseball and like, they're saying like, you know, maybe you don't have to go with the popular guy, you know, you can go with like the guy that you got to know that was like a little weird because he threw weird or he like swung funny, but like, he's a good dude and he like can provide value. And like, there's also something so wholesome and optimistic and just like feel good about that. Right. Like that's the hallmark of like, I think some of the best sports movies are like what we kind of usually want from, I guess, sports movies. Right. We want that like win that team that unity feeling elmer took a bit of a roundabout approach to the sales pitch for moneyball but i promise it connects at the end i'm gonna assume this person likes tom hanks movies because most people do but i think one of the key things that makes tom hanks a good actor and or maybe not a good actor but his portrayal of characters so powerful is every single movie it doesn't matter what he's doing in the movie he just wants to go home. He just wants to get off the clock and go home. It could be as dramatic as uh, it is Castaway, or it could be as small as it is in Catch Me and You Can, where like he's just like, yeah, I just want to like finish this job. Like I need to chase this kid, you know. Like there, there's something about that that is so, so moving, so easy to connect with, and that I think this film is that feeling boiled down like it was heroin, like just the most direct way to get good feelings, right? And, I, you know, like I said, I had zero affinity for baseball. So don't let that stop you. Just look at all the other reasons. Pick someone on the cast that you don't love. Pick some, like Aaron Sorkin is interesting enough, like might as well watch it, you know? Finally, we'll close this episode out on yet another movie with a Boston connection. My name is Scott Chasen, and my favorite movie is Spotlight. I've never really had the chance to sit down with Scott Chasen, a KU football, basketball, and recruiting beat writer for 24-7 Sports, and have a dedicated conversation about movies. So I was very much looking forward to hearing more about his relationship to not only Spotlight, but movies in general. I am a big fan of movies and escapism in general uh, through movies, just... Uh, from the perspective of I enjoy uh, a really broad range and variety of movies, uh, and that's not just on subject matter, um, varying quality of movies I enjoy differently. Um, I think everyone's watched bad movies that they enjoy making fun of with their friends. But uh, I mean, to me, if I know what I'm getting myself into, I know what kind of experience I'm looking for. I can usually find a movie to fit my mood. If I've had a bad day, maybe I want something uplifting. If I'm just bored and sitting around, maybe I want something exciting and I don't really care about the quality of storytelling. Uh, and then there are times where I want to dig into something really advanced that's going to take a long time to figure out and kind of, you know, mess with my mind a little bit. The Prestige is, you know, one example of that. Tenet is another example of that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love movies. I've probably seen way too many, 
uh, when I was in, I want to say ninth or 10th grade, I made a goal of watching one movie a day every day for the entire summer. And I didn't have access to that many good movies with like the free section of on demand. Uh, so I ended up watching a lot of terrible movies, but uh, I think I've seen a, a good amount at this point. Right. Uh, and you mentioned escapism, but um, is there something about journalism movies or journalists portrayed in movies that kind of draws you in or is it just spotlight? There are a few like Shattered Glass was really interesting to me. The idea of like someone who plagiarizes and you be, but he's the main character and you see him kind of um, get caught throughout the movie and, and it's based on a true story. Um, I'm always intrigued by portrayal of media in other media, basically, and, and especially because, you know, it's, it's often a, a negative portrayal, even in, you know, one of my favorite TV shows lately is uh, Ted Lasso. I thought it was uh, great, but you know, even even in shows like that, journalists are often portrayed as, you know, negative and, and harsh and looking to to find something you're doing wrong and, and things like that. So anytime there's a realistic portrayal of, of how it works, I'm I'm always interested in that. And I I just think it's an interesting subject matter, especially being in the field. It, it's weird to escape from your work by looking at something that is in the same area of that. Although obviously I work in sports and that um is in a much more important area. But I just think it's interesting. It's a uh, if someone can tell a story about something you do and make it seem accurate and, and really involve you, then I think that's, you know, one of the most power that, that shows they've created a powerful uh, work of art or piece of film or cinema or whatever. And um, that's how I felt watching Spotlight. The first time I saw it, um, I really didn't totally know what it was going to be about going into it, but it, you know, very quickly, I felt like they had absolutely nailed the kind of uh, tone and, uh, I mean, everything that they were going for. And it, it felt very familiar to me. And then I think I really enjoyed the movie from there. Right. And, and in this case, the spotlight, or you mentioned Shattered Glass or the, the other examples, does it change your perspective at all looking at them? I know you, I know you work in sports, obviously, but does it change mm -hmm. your perspective at all being a journalist yourself, kind of looking at these portrayals? I don't know if it necessarily does, but I think it's always, it, it's always reinvigorating for my own passion for my job and, and the field of journalism in general, uh, whenever, you know, I watch something like this, you know, I think one of the most powerful parts of uh, spotlight is the end um, spoiler alert, but when they kind of reveal all these places where, um, you know, I, basically sex crimes have been uncovered or discovered within um, clergy, uh, it, you know, across the country and they just list city or across the world and they just list city after city after city. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it, it just kind of reminds you how powerful um, and important the field of journalism is, you know, how many people would be, um, you know, internally tortured for the rest of their lives, if not for the work of, you know, certainly these people. And then, you know, after I watch a movie like Spotlight or Shattered Glass, the first thing I do is Google and I want to read articles. I want to read the real articles. I want to see the real people. I want to um, understand more about them. And yeah, I mean, I, I think from my own perspective, it makes me more passionate about journalism. It makes me care a little bit more and, and gives me a little bit more motivation, even if again, you know, I'm writing about games more often than not or players or things like that. But it, it you know, gives me a little bit more fire to go in that area. And also, I think at times makes me a little more uh, skeptical and kind of reminds me that, you know, hey, there are a lot of people out there who will lie or who have stories or who are doing things wrong that, you know, it's important to pay attention to. And that comes up in sports just as much as it comes up in, it, in you know, any field. And it's just kind of a reminder about the importance of good reporting and, you know, just doing your job correctly. 
Now, the spotlight pick wasn't an immediate thing, since, as Scott says, he doesn't have just one go-to favorite movie. I've always said that I don't have one favorite movie. I have five. And that five is not a set list. It is constantly changing. You know, Get Smart was my favorite childhood movie. I was sick from school one day, and I'm pretty sure I watched it eight times over a three-day stretch. And I know every line from that movie. Um, not the best movie, but, you know, I love Steve Carell. and Hathaway is great. Um, it's just a fun movie. The Rock's in it. Um, it's just fun. Um, you know, I have some rom-coms that I, I hold near and dear to my heart. Definitely Maybe is one that I really like. Um, there's Jane Eyre. The book is prominently featured in it. And as of present, one of my friends actually got me the same copy of her version of Jane Eyre that's in the book, which was a nice present. And um, I think that's a really meaningful movie. Um, Pitch Perfect. You know, that was one in college that I really liked. Um, uh, another member of the University of Daily Kansas when I worked there myself would sing songs from Pitch Perfect in the newsroom, I think just to annoy people. Um, but it, it was a good movie. And um, I'm really a fan of like when a low budget film gets made and it, it's just like so quality that it turns into a giant franchise that's like markedly worse than the original. Um, but you watch each of the other ones because it's like rekindling that fire um, to a lesser extent. Oh, I can't remember. Oh, The Purge. That was another version where like the first movie takes place in a house and then the next movies are like destroying cities and countries. And it's like, oh, I can see how, you know, we got to this point. But Spotlight felt like a good one because one, I wanted something I could talk about for a while. And as much as I like the other movies, I'm not sure they necessarily have a lot of things that I'm necessarily passionate about. You know, I like the storytelling and definitely maybe it's... uh uh, I can't remember the uh, the original work of art that it's um, uh, that this formatting followed, but it starts kind of like in the middle of the story, goes back to the beginning, goes to the end. It might be the Iliad or the Odyssey that was like way back in the day originally, that kind of uh, storytelling. But um, not saying that a romantic comedy with uh, Ryan Reynolds is based off, uh, you know, one of those. But, you know, I, I just wanted something I was passionate about. I could talk about something I cared about and uh, a good movie. Um, Spotlight's one of my favorites. It was I believe an Academy Award winner. It was has a lot of great performances and actors. Um, I think Mark Ruffalo has the best scene of that movie. Um, but I, it, it's just, it checked a lot of boxes for me. And so that was the movie I went with. Right. And as you mentioned, uh, Best Picture winner um, in 2015. Um, what makes Spotlight so rewatchable for you? I'm not sure it is for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, it may be a journalist thing, but I think the thing for me is that, I mean, it's a fairly... I have no idea how long the movie is. It's probably over two hours, but it's fairly action filled in terms of conversations, relationships, scenes, tension. Um, there are some lighthearted, funny moments like when, you know, a, a, the Jewish editor takes over the um, uh, Boston Globe and they start reporting on the Catholic Church and like those dynamics there. And everyone's telling him that you're suing the Catholic Church. And he's like, no, I'm, we're not doing that. But Yet every single person who comes up to him is like, hey, you're suing the church. Um, uh, there's just like a lot of kind of the whole movie is based on relationships and how people, the characters interact. There are frustrations from the reporters about how they want to pursue things and sources not talking to them uh, that I think is really relatable. Um, the acting is absolutely tremendous. You know, even someone like Stanley Tucci, like way down on the cast list, you know, he has a really important role to play. Mark Ruffalo, I mentioned, is amazing. Rachel McAdams is fantastic. Uh, Lee Schreiber plays um, Marty Baron, the, the editor um, who comes in. It, it's, it's a good combination of a real story that's really important, really emotional, fantastic acting, 
a good blend of some lighthearted, but also some really tense and stressful moments. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it's, it's so well put together and uh, fulfilling how it takes you through the story that um, it's just very easy to appreciate that, you know, it's, it's a terrific movie. From 2015, Spotlight, written by Tom McCarthy and Josh Singer and directed by McCarthy, follows the true story of the Special Investigative Reporting Unit at the Boston Globe, known as Spotlight. The team, consisting of Mike Resendez, Walter Robbie Robinson, Sasha Pfeiffer, and Matt Carroll, uncovered the decades-long scandal of child molestation within the Catholic Church, both in Boston and, as they come to find, all over the world. It's a movie that details the necessary reporting process to get all of the information correct, get sources to open up about their painful past, and also rerouting when 9-11 happens in the middle of it all. Nominated for six Oscars, including wins for Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay, Spotlight is a movie about the importance of journalism and holding institutions accountable. I think something that people often don't realize is institutions can be a lot more nefarious than you think. You know, whether it's me and my own reporting uh, being kind of lied to to my face at times from on, on relatively low stakes things that don't really matter that much. Um, whether it's a coach who doesn't want to disclose an injury because it's a you know a small advantage or for whatever reason, or maybe it was a suspension and they don't want to say. And then you take that obviously to a much bigger level when, you know, you have the church reassigning priests who have uh, molested children and done horrible things and committed unspeakable acts. And, you know, they they kind of meet, they there are these settlements paid out to the families to get it to kind of go away. They, you know, sign non-disclosure agreements or whatever that they can't even acknowledge exist. The, you know, church kind of comes in and, you know, assures the family, hey, we're so sorry. This, you know, I don't know how this happened. It'll never happen again. And and then the priests are reassigned to another place and they start doing it immediately again. And um, it explores some really interesting thematic elements, such as how, you know, priests and clergy have different rules than people are allowed to abide by. But there's research that shows a lot of them don't abide by it. So what it does is it creates this kind of construct of secrecy or this, you know, area where people are lying and they all know they're lying, but they're all comfortable just keeping these secrets um, and deceiving others. And then, you know, they try to argue that it, it leads to something like this. So I think it shows you how you can keep institutions accountable. It does a good job of showing how the church pushes back um, against the globe and, you know, down to the very end when the globe is ready to run the story. And um, I think they reach out to Cardinal Law for um, a quote and, and this is in the story. In the movie, it says he's not even interested in knowing what the Globe's questions were or whoever it was. Uh, maybe it was just a member of the church, uh, like a, a PR communications director. And then you go look up the real life story on Spotlight, and that is what's written in the story. Like um, the, the church in this case felt that it was so powerful, it didn't need to be held accountable, that it didn't need to answer for um, enabling, you know, un unspeakable and horrible acts. And you know, again, I think that's why it's so important. Another kind of interesting aspect of this movie that I had no idea about um, was how it ties with 9-11 and that the reporting on Spotlight, um, the reporting on, you know, again, these, these horrible crimes was kind of put off because 9-11 happened. 
And I thought that was a really interesting part of the movie because one, it's obviously real. Like that's what happened in real life. And and actually when I saw this movie with my father, who has uh, been in the field of preventative law, stopping, you know, some of these horrible things from happening. Um, he knew, he knew going into it that nine 11 was going to be part of this. And like, it had not crossed my mind, but clearly for people who were working in that kind of area at the time, they, that was a part of it and how it kind of pushed everything back. And, I think the frustration the viewer feels, um, obviously it doesn't minimize 9-11, which was a horrible, horrible terrorist act uh, or day or whatever you want to call it. But the fact that, you know, you're following these stories, you care so much about these poor people who are being molested um, and, and raped and, 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 you know, again, horrible acts. And then it's just, you know, hey, we got to focus on something else now. Put that aside. And um, I think the frustration the viewer experiences during that and, and the kind of conflicted nature, I think that's really powerful too, because it just goes to show you sometimes how hard it is to concretely nail down the right things, um, to tell a complex and complete story like that, to expose corruption or wrongdoing. And then at the same time, to have the timing work out and have sources talk, you know, it comes down to the very end, getting a list of names confirmed. Um, that Michael Keaton has to go, you know, basically the night before the story runs to uh, get that list confirmed. And it's something that takes months to work on, not days, not weeks. Um, I mean, this was this investigation was done over a long, long time. And, and you could argue it took years, actually. So I, I think it does a few things. It shows you how hard it is to hold systems accountable at times. It shows you that sometimes those systems don't care and believe they're above being held accountable, even when they're obviously in the wrong. And then it kind of takes the viewer through that and the frustrations and some of the things that, that can occur. Um, I think people who see it probably um, appreciate how important journalism is or have a greater appreciation after they see it. But I mean, certainly it, it covers sort of all, all angles of it. And again, I, I just think it's such a, a quality movie, a deserving Academy Award winner, because it, it really does tackle complex subject na- nature expertly. Right. And you, and you kind of mentioned earlier how Michael Keaton kind of you know, at the end, it's revealed that he he had kind of dropped the ball in Metro however many years ago. But I think I think they say like December of 93 or something like that. But there's a lot of finger pointing in this movie. You know, there's a lot of, oh, the Cardinal failed. Oh, but the police failed, too. Oh, but the mm-hmm. lawyers failed as well. Oh, but the Globe had it five, ten years ago. They didn't do yeah. anything. I mean, you may not have the answer to this. And maybe I don't I don't know exactly either. But where does the blame go here or where does it end really with this? Yeah, you know. I think it obviously starts with the people who commit the wrongdoing are always most responsible. You know, I, I think there's always a lot of different ways to look at, you know, what you mentioned and, and what I what I spoke about that, the you know, the Globe had it a long time ago and did nothing. I think the most dangerous attitude, and it's one I try to remind myself not to fall into, um, that you can get into sometimes is feeling like you know everything or feeling like you're, you know, really, you have everything nailed down and you don't need to ask questions to learn more. And on a very micro, small and less important level, like, you know, watching, covering football games at the University of Kansas and thinking, you know, um, who's calling what play based off their history. And, you know, you might go three or four weeks without ever asking, you know, hey, who called this play and not even give a chance for the question to be answered or even just give a chance to be lied to, you know, whatever, just because you think, you know. Um, And and I think that applies to all fields. I think that is why um, a lot of places, a lot of companies stay very stagnant. They're afraid to ask the question of, are we not doing something or is our way wrong? And so I think that that can be part of it. Um, I think obviously the police have a huge role to play here. Um, As you see at the beginning of the movie, I'm generally sympathetic to lawyers because lawyers are lawyers. They're not 
journalists. They're not activists. They're that's what they are. They negotiate settlements. They draft non-disclosures. They, they this is what they do. They try cases. Um, and as you see, there are some good lawyers in the movie. As you would call them good guys, and some of the more portrayed to be. I don't want to use the word sleazy, but like cutting a deal and like, you know, trying to, you know, at one point, Michael Keaton speaks to one of the lawyer sources and says, you know, hey, we've got two stories. We've got what's going on to these kids and we've got lawyers who are turning sex crimes into a, you know, basically a business and just doing settlements and making money. Which one do you want us to run in trying to get them to talk? And so I I think there is blame to go all around. Um, there's no perfect percentage or anything. Obviously the people most responsible are always the people committing the acts. Um, so you'd probably say the church followed by the police are a strong one and two. And then, you know, maybe you start at like number 55 for the blame that you'd assign to everyone else. But I think the most important thing is that the story eventually got told, even if it was late and that it was told correctly because, and the globe does the, or the movie does a good job of explaining this. If you tell a story wrong and you screw it up, people will read it. And then they will assume that is it. And anyone who publishes follow-up stories or whatever that maybe corrects your mistakes, that doesn't always get read. Um, A good example of that could have been the Greg Marshall stuff that happened earlier this year at Wichita State. And I think it was the Athletic and Stadium published stories on the same day. And people might ask, you know, hey, one of them published a story. Why are you going same day? And it's like, well, if they wait, um, if there's different information or stuff, no one's going to read that two weeks later because they feel like they already know it. Um, and if one of those outlets, which neither of them did or, you know, anything like that, but if one of those outlets had bungled the story or misidentified sources or gotten an incident wrong, people would discredit it. And then when it came out later, they would, you know, they're not going to care the same way as they would. It's, you know, haven't we already heard about this? Don't we already know this was fake, whatever. Um, so that's, that's, I think another part of it, how they explore it's dangerous to, run with something when you're not a hundred percent certain, or you don't have the full scope, they could run stories on um, a certain small number of priests or, you know, this issue being in Boston and really not, you know, how it affects basically the, um, the rest of it. I think, you know, the, the main issue then was they wanted to run the story and it would show that Cardinal law was um, kind of the issue, but it didn't show the system. The, the whole system was flawed. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it too. And, and I think that's, I guess the opposite of blame, that would be something they did responsibly and correctly. But you do see that it's it's not just, you know, how does the story take so long to come out? There, there are a lot of reasons. And, you know, another part is you have to have people talk and it's really hard for people who are, you know, certainly molested, raped, like in this movie, but, you know, anyone who's harassed or feels taken advantage of, it, it's a very hard thing. Uh, for them to feel comfortable, you know, being coming forward and speaking about it, it, it can be really hard for a lot of people. You saw it today with, uh, or this last week with reporting on, you know, the New York Mets general manager and unsolicited texts and photos that he sent. And, you know, it takes that story a long time to come out, out because as ESPN reported, uh, the reporter feared retribution if she were to come forward with that a, a while ago. So uh, it, it's complicated. Journalism is really, really hard. I'm not sure people necessarily understand that if they haven't been in it. I'm not sure all journalists understand um, how hard it is sometimes to hold powers that be accountable. Um, But, you know, again, I think that's something the movie just does really well and really expertly. But I also wanted to look at and how this kind of uh, portrayed uh, the reporting process, because, you know, I mean, that's kind of a big part of this movie, you know, how they're source building, how they're working crazy hours, you know, public records requests, stuff like that. How did you feel like this kind of portrayed just the reporting process? 
Well, mostly accurately, I would say. Um, it's probably a little dramatic with how it all came together in the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the biggest thing is it shows that sometimes if you can't get people to talk, there are records you can turn to. Um, it shows how, how many conversations take place. It shows um, you have to interview, sometimes re-interview people over and over. You know, for one story I worked on in college, I did an hour-long interview with someone, and then I wrote my draft of the story and showed it to a professor to get feedback. And, he, you know, he there were a lot of things he wanted re-asked. And I just interviewed this older woman for, you know, an hour plus, and I went over and I interviewed her for another hour. And, you know, I think it shows, especially on important stories, that it can be really arduous. It can be, um, it involves arguments. You know, a newsroom can be a really tense um, place at times. It's a little different when you're in the sports world because there's there's less of that. But there there are a lot of conversations that take place. You know, I don't really have editors who tell me you should write this or you should cover this. Um, and that's not really how that works. You know, Spotlight has a lot of autonomy to cover the stories it believes it should be covering. Um, but there's still conversation on that team about the ways they want to cover things and how they want to do it and who's going to take what work. Um, I think that's very real. And you know, again, the hardest part of journalism is getting people to talk because, you know, just because there's wrongdoing, um, people have to have that motivation to want to speak out about it. You know, I, I wrote a story on mental health on KU's campus and how campus has kind of treated that in uh, college. And one of the hardest things in getting that story done was, one, getting the people who do that at KU to respond to me. Um, I had no shortage of people willing to complain and say what all the things that were wrong was, but I just wanted them to answer and tell me what they thought, their opinion, their side of the story. Um, and I had to send a number of emails just to get a, a response and continually reach out over and over. And it took, you know, that story took weeks or months to to get through. And, you know, it, it's, that was a, a very realistic process of, you know, understanding that, you know, you, there are so many different people you can talk to. And uh, even when you report a story, the reporting's not done because people who feel like that reporting relates to them or, you know, they may become involved. They may want their stories told. Verifying information has to have a very high standard. Um, they verify the names a few ways. One, going through the lawyer who uh, arranged the settlements. That's one way they verify information. Um, they go through one of the members of the clergy or someone who comes in and, and does work and, and kind of helps them out. Um, they get the list verified that way. They obviously back things up with the priests who have been reassigned by kind of cross-checking um, the priests with uh, these kind of logs of where they're going. So um, it, it just shows there's a high standard for information. Um, if you get something wrong, you're going to be picked apart. The smallest detail can invalidate an entire story, even if it is just a very, very tiny detail. And again, it shows that sometimes you're not going to have the person you're reporting on confirm things for you and say, oh yeah, you got me. I did this wrong. A lot of times they're going to flat out lie to your face or say they don't care or say they're above what you're doing. Um, and that doesn't make it any less important to report on um, and to investigate and especially big institutions like obviously the church. So, right. And then the other side of that, you kind of mentioned it earlier, just this, how this movie is kind of about relationships. Um, and I, I feel like this this um, story that they're working on as it kind of continues to grow and grow, it really is taking a toll on a lot of them. I know you mentioned earlier that they knew seeing that uh, I think his character's name is Mike or he, mm -hmm. that takes a really big toll on Mike. And, you know, Sasha stops going to church with her Nana. And I mean, just kind of shows the personal life. How, how do you, how do you feel like this movie kind of not only shows the storytelling or the story they're trying to tell, but also just like the toll that something like this can take on somebody. 
Yeah, well, there's one other member of the team, and I can't remember his name at this point. It's the one who's not Rachel McAdams, uh, Mark Ruffalo, or Michael Keaton. And um, he realizes one of the houses uh, where um, either someone lives or one of the rehabilitation centers or something is like right down the street from his house. And he asks, he's like, can I tell someone about this? Can I, you know, he puts a photo on his fridge that says stay away from this house. Um, and when the story runs, he takes a newspaper over and drops it on that house's front door or front porch, which is um, kind of a funny scene, which gets a laugh um, in, in the movie. And yeah, I mean, it, it definitely takes a toll. Anytime you report on something that's dark, um, it can be hard, especially, you know, the, the one thing I will compare to the sports world is sometimes you report on figures who are beloved by a community that maybe doesn't understand um, yet or doesn't know yet because the reporting hasn't happened, you know, what kind of things those people have done. And on a much smaller level than what was reported on in the spotlight, um, though not an insignificant level, because obviously an extremely important level, um, you know, Greg Marshall, you know, a week before that story came out. Yeah, people think Greg Marshall is a crazy person who loses his temper a lot. But, you know, to know that he said things that were so offensive, he uh, allegedly hit or according to a player hit and a coach, you know, attacked people basically. I mean, like, you know, things and it, it's hard. It, it, it can weigh on you. You know, I've reported on things um, where I've been uncomfortable with a person and yet, um, you know, I need to go and be objective and, and that, and it's, it's hard to walk that, that balance, you know, um, I'm sure those who cover the chiefs ran into that with Tyreek Hill when all that stuff was going on and, you know, just navigating that situation. It's, it's really difficult. And, Again, sometimes you have people that that when you're reporting on these things, they're going to be a little bit combative. They're going to be a little bit defiant. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it can take a toll on you. Reporting over a long period of time on something that's so important can be really frustrating. Um, the movie definitely does a good job of showing that. And, you know, also just hearing these heartbreaking stories about all these people who are molested as a kid and, and you know, basically how the world conspired to keep it a secret and tell them that it actually wasn't that big a deal. Um, you know, that's heartbreaking. And and so those things always do take a toll. Um, you know, I guess personally, fortunately, I don't have to report on too many of those kinds of stories um, because of the field, the subject matter I cover, but that doesn't minimize the importance in any way of those who do, because uh, it does take a toll and it, it's incredibly important that they keep, you know, reporting on those topics. And, um, and you mentioned kind of the stories, the victim stories, and as we kind of learn, learn more, uncover more information, go to the basement and get the files and clips and stuff like that, mm -hmm. this story continues to grow, right? And, and, I, and they kind of, they say it a few times in the movie, but you know, the Globe, it's really like a local paper. Boston is really a small town. It's a really tight-knit community, that, but the church kind of runs the show and everything in that respect. And I think they say at one point, like 53% of the Globe's readership is Catholic or something like that. Um, what do you think of the scope of this movie? Because, you know, it feels like it kind of starts really small, but then it just continues to grow and grow and grow until it's literally worldwide. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of times how reporting works, but I mean, they covered it in, in a different way because like you mentioned, the Boston Globe, you know, treating it, yeah, I mean, just everyone who works there is from Boston and has ties in the area. Um, and that's part of, a, you know, the storyline. And obviously you mentioned the readership, like even some big cities are different, you know, Los Angeles, New York are, are giant places. And, and so I think that's probably part of the angle, like, and the real life events that took place there. But, you know, at the same time, all, all news is local. 
um, all news is relevant in a local sense in some way, because even, you know, the biggest stories have some reason that they tie locally and the best storytelling is done to connect to you, the reader, the viewer, the listener in some way that localizes it. And I think, you know, it's a little bit more clear cut in a story like this because it starts in Boston. So many of the examples and the people, it all took place in Boston. It was reporting from a Boston paper. Um, but even if it took place like a national organization like the Associated Press, um, you know, one of the challenges they would face would be finding ways to localize it and not just saying, yep, hey, this is kind of going on everywhere, but can't really tie any faces and names to it. You have to make the community care, um, especially about something that's so important. So um, it was it was definitely an aspect of the movie. And, um, you know, in, in that way, maybe it's it's for the best that that reporting did come from a paper like the Boston Globe, just because it was so, you know, rooted and tied in the community. Spotlight is filled with a loaded cast, which includes Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Billy Crudup, Leave Schreiber, John Slattery, and Stanley Tucci, and as Scott says, that group wouldn't come together to make a bad film. I would say this movie connects with you on an emotional level in different ways. It can be at times maybe even a little taxing to take you through this story, um, but there are moments that are generally heartfelt, generally stressful, generally put you in kind of a dilemma of sorts um, in your own mind watching it. Uh, there are moments that are legitimately lighthearted and funny again, because I, I think it's very easy to become lost in this movie. One of the biggest complaints I have about movies that have, you know, a lot of famous actors and very notable people is you can't ever see them as anything other than the actor speaking those lines. Personally, I have that problem in a lot of Tom Hanks movies. I, the whole time I'm like, that's Tom Hanks. I'm like, that's not the character he's trying to play. Um, but in this movie, I think the story really draws you in. Um, it, again, it's very easy to get lost in it and it kind of takes you on this ride and makes you feel like you're, you know, part of this thing that you want to see happen. You want the wrongdoing to be exposed. You want people to be okay. It, it brings you to a very fulfilling conclusion, albeit not a, albeit not a complete one. And again, it's just a, it's a really good movie. It's, it's well scored. The, you know, there, there are no issues whatsoever in terms of, you know, the, the set, the design, all the scenes they show you, it's, it's a, a very, very well-made movie. Um, but I think the performances are really emotional. The characters really connect with the audience. And um, it's one of those movies that if you watch, uh, I can't imagine anyone ever watching that movie and spending two hours on it and then saying, yeah, I regretted watching that movie. I, like, I, I think there, you know, maybe less than 1% of people who watched it could possibly have that takeaway. It, it's really just a great movie. Coming up next on the Formative Films Project, we'll shift gears to films that feature actors, with most being comedians in this case, showing off their range. Uh, I picked Good Will Hunting probably because it's like, Rounders is a good film, but Good Will Hunting kinda didn't, I don't wanna be cliche and say like it changed me, but I just related to it so much that it's, legitimately a film that I could watch every single day and never be, you know, unsatisfied with it. I'm sure you get the question all the time, what's your favorite movie? Get that question all the time. This is one that I've always like, ever since, I think I watched it for the first time uh, freshman year of high school. And ever since then, that's always been, what's your favorite movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, just again, the way that he is able to tackle like, his issues of love and ro uh, romantic relationships and like, the characters feel so real 
So I feel like Uncut Gems is a very interesting movie to like dissect and analyze because of the main character, Howard. Um, I mean, Howard has a lot of characteristics that um, are pretty unlikable. Um, I mean, like he like cheats, steals, lies, etc. Um, and like he's not the brightest character either because he never really learns from his mistake and from his mistakes. And so I think that that's kind of something to not like about him either. But the thing that's so interesting is that like everyone in the audience is still rooting for him 